Okay, session five. The theme. This is the theme of the entire book in these first four verses. The divine kiss and the bride's life vision. Chapter one, verse two to four. I'm just going to read that. Chapter one, verse two. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This is the passage we looked at in session three. She's standing before the Father asking for the kisses of His mouth. She's appealing to the one that has authority over the Lord Jesus. The one that has authority over the King. Let Him kiss me with the kisses of His mouth. Because or for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments or or perfumes. You could put the word perfumes there. Your name is perfume or it's ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice, we will uh, be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Okay. The three directions of the bride's communication. It's important to acknowledge that the bride is speaking in three distinct directions in this passage. It's necessary to grasp this in order to best understand the full meaning of the passage. First, she speaks directly to the father. She says, she says in essence, Father, let your son kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Again, she's appealing to the one that has authority over the king. Secondly, then she speaks directly to Jesus. She says, your love is better than wine. The fragrance of your good perfume, your name is poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. And then thirdly, she speaks to all sincere believers. These are the virgins that have a seeking heart of love for the bridegroom. She's exhorting all to imitate her faith in the uh, 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 final parts of verse 4. Okay, the superior pleasures in the grace of God. What a fantastic, what a fantastic subject. It's a subject that we need to see emphasized and developed in the lives of, of the body of, of the people in the body of Christ today. What is the desired result of the kisses of His Word? I, I like to use the phrase, instead of the kisses of His mouth, I like the phrase, the kisses of His Word. Oh, I understand the passage says the kisses of his mouth, but it's so easily misunderstood. So I encourage those that write or those that sing to uh, interchange, to replace the words of your mouth with of your word. Because it gives, I believe, the right interpretation right along with it. Lord, let us know the kisses of your word. I think that minimizes the potential for uh, people who don't have understanding of the context so they don't run with it in in ways that are inappropriate. What is the desired result of the kisses of His Word? Why does she so long for them? The second half of verse 2 supplies the answer. She says, because your love is better than wine. She uses the word for, for your love, to signify the purpose of the kisses. The word for sets forth the reasons why she wants the kisses. In session 3, we looked at the... the uh, the, the uh, uh, phrase, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. In this session, we want to focus on because or for your love is better than wine. 
Generally speaking, she is now introducing the realm of the superior pleasures of the gospel. These superior pleasures are found in a unique way in the bridal paradigm of the kingdom of God that we looked at in session three. I like how the NIV translates this, this uh, verse. It says, your love is more delightful than wine. I like the phrase more delightful than. Is better than, is superior to, is more delightful than. That's the, that's the uh, principle that we want to focus in on. The superior pleasures of the gospel are in contrast to the inferior pleasures of sin. And again, one of the foundational principles of the bridal paradigm of the kingdom of God is that God is wanting to free us from the inferior pleasures of sin, not by putting us in a vacuum, not by simply gritting our teeth, looking at them, and in the power of repentance, refusing them, but rather He introduces into our experience pleasures that are more powerful The ones that we call the superior pleasures of the gospel that are more powerful than the inferior pleasures of sin. I acknowledge that sin has pleasure, but it's not near as powerful as when God unfolds the romance of the gospel to the human spirit. And the common approach of of looking at the inferior pleasures of sin, gritting our teeth, trying to, by the sheer force of willpower, Deny or overcome those pleasures, those inferior pleasures, is not very effective. But rather God shows us there is something that is better than, superior to, more delightful than, even the wine of this world. She is referring to the superior pleasures that she experiences in the revelation of the romance of the gospel. This is her first acknowledgement that the superior pleasures actually exist. That seems uh, maybe uh, commonplace, but many believers have never connected with the idea that the superior pleasures really do exist and that they are there to empower them and to minimize the power of sin in their heart and in their emotional makeup. This phrase is better than. Your love is better than is merely an introduction to the vast realm of experience in the Holy Spirit. She develops this theme further in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. We'll look at that next week. It's, it's a very uh, delightful passage when she says, I sat with great delight under your shade and your banner over me is love. And she's overflowing in her introductory experiences of the superior pleasures of the gospel. I don't have much confidence in people substantially staying free from sin on the, from the inside out without experiencing these superior pleasures. They don't have to use that language. That's a language that, that I think is practical. It's not a theological term. That's what I mean by the romance of the gospel. It's the understanding of the gospel that exhilarates the heart, that stuns the heart, that draws the heart in love and, and intoxicates us. It's, it's the understanding of the gospel that causes us to be lovesick and to be fascinated with the beauty of the Lord. The seven longings that we look at in the bridal paradigm of the kingdom from, se- from session uh, three. Okay. The greatest intensity of these spiritual pleasures are found in context to the beauty of the bridegroom and the bridal paradigm of the kingdom of God. That's where I believe the pleasures are most intensely experienced. Again, that presupposes 
that we're taking these passages and turning them into devotional prayer. Studying these passages will not release these pleasures in our experience or will not uh, bring us into the experience of these pleasures. Merely uh, intellectual information of Bible verses about the beauty of the Lord will not in and of themselves be sufficient. But these these uh, passages that we study with our minds and then turn them into prayer, and as the Holy Spirit in the context of devotional prayer begins to unfold the reality of them in our spirit, that is where, that is where she's talking about, is greater than, is superior to, is more delightful than wine. Oh, I believe with all of my heart that the whether the, whether the language is used uh, in a universal way across the body of Christ, the experience your love is better than, is superior to, is more delightful, I believe will be the common experience of God's people before the Lord returns. Intoxicated, lovesick, fascinated with the beauty of the Lord and the beauty that He imparts to the church, the twofold beauty. The beauty He possesses and the beauty that He imparts to the gospel. Okay, she uses the wine metaphor because wine exhilarates the heart. That's why she's using the wine metaphor. Wine in this context speaks of the exhilarating and intoxicating things of the world. She's setting forth the idea of a stunned heart, of a heart that is wowed and wooed by the beauty of the Lord. The wine that is, in, I mean, the heart that is intoxicated with the Lord. And that's what uh, we believe very strongly that the Lord wants to make a common experience in the midst of the body of Christ before the Lord returns. Okay, your love is better than wine. We're going to look at the, at the, at the phrase better than wine. Wine in this context is not speaking of the sinful things that are often associated with, with wine, but it's speaking of the good things that God has provided in earthly life. I don't think she's saying, your love is better than sin. That's, that's understood. That's implied. That's obvious. I think she's saying, the unfolding of your love is even better than the other privileges that you allow us to have, but don't bring us into a conscious experience of your love. God blesses us in many ways, and yet our heart does not connect with the unfolding of His beauty and His love. Wine is not used here in a negative way. It speaks of the best that the earthly experience has to offer, even in the blessing of the Lord. It's very common for a man or a woman to experience financial increase, or the favor of God in relationships, or even an increase of spiritual authority without their hearts being wowed and wooed in the love of God. It's very, very common for a ministry to increase in its spiritual authority, but its heart not to increase in a, in a corresponding way. Many uh, anointed men and women in their hearts are dull and dead internally, yet their ministries are growing externally. So I believe she's saying, even of all the blessings, the wine of, of God's blessing, the celebration dimensions of even the favor of the Lord in our life, there's something even more in, intoxicating than even the blessing of God in circumstances. It's the unveiling of the affection, the emotion of God to our spirits. This speaks to me in a personal way that as ministry opportunities increase and as the favor of the Lord increases... The Lord whispers in my heart through this text and says, Mike, don't ever exchange the, un, the, the progressive 
discovery of me for an increase of earthly ministry. Always keep it in perspective. I don't want to go the common way. And I have on occasions in my life lost my my, my, uh, progressive experience of the beauty of the Lord while being used and blessed by the Lord in earthly and in natural circumstances. Wine in this context of the marriage metaphor is the drink of earthly celebration. It's the drink of gladness, the drink of blessing. Again, uh, in, in, in the kingdom context, it can be financial increase, it can be relational favor, it can be physical health and strength, it can be a new sphere of, uh, of anointing for ministry. These things are wonderful, these things are of God, but never ever are we to seek increase in these areas while our heart is decreasing in its experience of the Lord. And that's a very, very common experience in church history. To receive the increase of divine blessing and circumstances while a decreased experience of fascination in our heart in Jesus. The very blessings of God so preoccupy us that our heart becomes diminished in its experience of the Lord. It's called losing our first love. It's what the Lord told the, it's what the, Lord told the uh, church at, at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. She sees this absolute truth of life. The love of God is more exhilarating, more powerful than even the good wine of this world. The wine of God's blessing in this natural realm. That obviously presupposes the wine of sin. That God's love is more uh, satisfying than the wine of sin. It's even better than sin. It's even better than the, this, this revelation is better than even the blessing of God. In our circumstances. Though we're never to to shun away from the blessing of God in our circumstances or to despise it is what I'm saying. But whether, but I think she's calling us to a, a right perspective even in the midst of the great end time revival when tremendous increase of things are happening. But the Lord says, I want to love sick people first, not just a people with big ministries and powerful anointings. I believe that's what's going on here at its highest uh, form. She's comparing Jesus to the most exhilarating experiences, even in the blessing of God in natural circumstances. Okay. Affection-based obedience. She says your love is better than wine. The affection of God. I, I like to use the word love and exchange it for pleasure Affection or embrace, the affection of God, the pleasures of God, the embrace of God is better than. When the affection of God is revealed, what I call affection-based obedience is the is, is obedience that flows out of experiencing Jesus' love or affection. It is better than anything that we can experience in the natural realm. This is the strongest type of obedience. It's important to say, number one, it's not the only type of obedience. I know what it means to grit my teeth and to obey God without feeling anything. Obedience by faith without feelings is required. God requires us throughout the whole Word of God to obey Him even when we don't feel. So I'm not in any way minimizing the importance of obedience by faith with no feeling. I'm just saying the most powerful realm of obedience is affection-based obedience. Where we feel affection from Him and we feel affection back to Him by the Holy Spirit, then obedience is substantially easier to walk in. Deep obedience is substantially easier to walk in.
The strongest kind of obedience is based in the understanding and the experience of God's affection. We understand He has affection for us and we experience an impartation of it back to Him. This affection-based obedience is the strength of the gospel in the human experience. A lovesick people will embrace anything. They will do, they will endure anything for love. A lovesick people will do anything. And I believe that's the, that's the core of what's happening in Revelation 15 where it says, talking about the end time martyrs, they come up victorious from the earth, from the mark of the beast. They're victorious. They're killed, but they're victorious. It means their love was never diminished in the midst of the pressure and the temptations and the persecution. They, they had affection-based obedience. They were victorious. They had, their hearts were never diminished while facing the most horrendous pressures of all of history. They come off victorious. It's the same idea in chapter 8, verse 7, where the, the, the rivers and the waters can't put this love out. It's that idea. It's affection-based obedience. How much better is his love than wine? She makes this fantastic, I mean, this massive statement of which is just an introductory statement. It's like the Holy Spirit is inviting us, saying, I challenge you to follow the logic of that sentence out. I want to challenge you, this sentence, your love is better than wine. She's speaking it to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is challenging you. Just follow that logic. Get on the uh, on the trail of logic and see where the reasoning will take you from the Scriptures How much better is his love than wine, than even the wine of God's blessing in natural circumstances? It's a a very, very uh, uh, edifying and enlarging exercise to, to begin to spend your lifetime answering the question, how much better is the affection of God than even the wine of natural blessing? How much more the wine of sinful pleasures? And I take you right to the core of it. This is, a, to me, one of the most stunning passages in the Word of God. I, there's, it's, it's very difficult to, to touch anything more powerful than what I'm going to share in the next page or two. You find the truth in the Song of Solomon, but I'm going to uh, study it or look at it directly from the words of the Lord Jesus Himself. What is commonly called the uh, Upper Room Discourse. It's the... It was the teaching Jesus gave in the upper room just before the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the final recorded teaching to the apostles. The upper room discourse. Jesus repeatedly spoke of the Father's loving desire for the, for the disciples. Matter of fact, that very night He told them that they would all deny Him. As He's telling them this, we find from Matthew 26, He goes, Even this night you will deny Me. You will all stumble. You will all fall away. These disciples were carnal at the very time of the Last Supper. They were arguing about who was the greatest. and they I mean, they were just immature but very, very sincere believers. It is in this spiritual condition that He is speaking to them the, rea- the, the, the truth that I'm going to say in just a moment. In other words, these affirmations of His love were spoken to weak yet sincere believers, not to mature apostles. What, the thing I'm going to share in a moment, they, it was spoken to, to uh, immature believers that would stumble and deny the Lord, betray Him that very night, and they were captured with their own sense of competition and who was the best and the greatest. It's just like us. That's my point. 
The Last Supper, Jesus emphasized the measure of God's loving desire for them was no less than the measure of love the Father feels for His Son. It just suddenly He breaks out with this sentence straight out of the heart of God. I mean, such a word has never been uttered at any time in history. It comes from the voice of God Himself. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. I imagine Jesus saying this in this way. I imagine Him saying, as the Father has loved me, then He pauses and looks at them. And they ponder the vast implications of, as the Father has loved you, Jesus? Wow! Exactly how much has the Father loved His uncreated Son? Beloved, that is a world of truth that we can barely peer into at a far distance. There is a mystery and a power wrapped up in the truth. What does the Father feel towards His Son when He looks in His eyes? The uncreated God, first person of the Trinity, feeling desire for His Son, the second person of the Trinity. Exactly what would be the specifics of how He felt towards His Son? What a subject. He goes on to say, I want you to know that whatever the measure is the Father feels towards me, that is the only accurate measure to understand how I feel towards you and you will deny me this very night. They they don't have even a, a beginning of understanding of what that might mean in its fullness. Mystery of mysteries. The God feels about you in the same way that the Father feels about the Son. And again, that very night, they would fall away. He's preparing His disciples to love God under the pressures of disappointment, persecution, temptation, service, etc. Jesus knew they would fall away that very night. They would be condemned. He knew they would be disappointed that their hero would suddenly be killed. None of them were thinking He was going to be killed. They were about to enter into the greatest disappointment they could ever experience that night. Jesus would die. The Romans would win, it would appear. The disillusionment was beyond anything that we can imagine. The movement's over. He's dead. The Romans won. The Pharisees won. They're going, this is unthinkable. John the Baptist is dead. Now the Messiah is dead. How could it be? And then they all betray him, talking about disappointment. And then the scandal they felt in their own heart and shame. And then they were whipped and thrown in prison. The persecution... And then the burden of trying to be the main vehicles that would bring this message to others. I mean, the the pressures bearing down on them were beyond what I think that uh, most of us imagine. Jesus is preparing them. He says, I want to tell you this. The way the Father feels about me is the way I feel about you. The measure of the Father's enjoyment of Jesus is is the standard Jesus uses three times in the upper room discourse. Three times he uses this standard. It's it's, it's fascinating. The measure of the Father's affection and enjoyment of Jesus is the standard of how Jesus has affection for us. Jesus said, as the Father loves me, this is the way you are to understand that I love you. But it doesn't stop there. The measure of the Father's enjoyment of Jesus is the way the Father loves us. It's not just the way Jesus loves us. Jesus said, let me tell you, my Father loves you in the way He loves me. 
It's not just that I do, and I'm trying to talk my father in to buy an end to this. He loves you in the way he loves me. And that's the same way I love you. Both of us are in total agreement. And you will all fall away from me this very night. But the father loves you like he loves me. Beloved, this is, this is truly earth shattering. I mean, talking about paradigm shift. What's so surprising to me is John the Apostle is the only one who recorded it. It's like the other guys went, wow. And John had his head on the Lord's breast and he says, Lord, I, I don't really get this, but boy, this something's here. <laughs> this something's big. This is big, Lord. I, I don't really have it just yet, but this is something. And then we know uh, it's the very way the Father loves Jesus. The third time, Jesus says, Father, the way that you love me is the way they will love me. That we are going to be recipients of this quality of love. We're going to receive it back to God. The way the Father loves Jesus is how Jesus loves us. The way the Father loves Jesus is how the Father loves us. The way Father loves Jesus is how we'll love Jesus. What a divine love affair. What I mean, the, the eternal mystery of the romance is what we're called into. Loving God like God loves God. Being loved by God in the way that God loves God. I mean, fantastic, beloved. And they were all going to deny the Lord that very night. Okay. Seven principles of God's love. That is better than, that is more delightful than the wine of even blessing. I tell you, even in the midst of God's blessing, the wine of celebration from the very hand of God... When God reveals God to the human spirit, that is the superior, that's the highest place of pleasure. It's even more powerful than the blessing of God in earthly circumstances. You know, there's, there's a kind of person that they, they make the decision, they don't go all the way. They decide that serving God is better than serving sin, but their focus is on the blessing of God in their natural circumstances. They don't quite go all the way. There's even something better than that. It's God loving God and revealing it in your spirit and God loving you like He loves God. That's the better than, superior to, more delightful than even the wine of blessing. Anyway, these seven principles are necessary to understand the affection of God for weak believers. It's not a, a difficult thing to imagine God having affection for believers in heaven or even really mature believers on the earth. The difficulty comes with the idea of God having affection for weak, broken people like the apostles were right there in the upper room. That's where the problem comes. The problem comes with believing the affection is for weak and broken people. Nobody has a problem with God Liking us in heaven. That's not where the problem is. That's not where the challenge, that's not where the enemy comes to deceive us. Matter of fact, the enemy says he'll like you in heaven, but not until then. Okay. Spiritual immaturity is not the same thing as rebellion. And God views the immaturity of the apostles very differently than the rebellion of the Pharisees. Entirely different, though both of them were unfaithful to the Lord under pressure. The Lord looks at our spiritual immaturity very, very different than He looks at rebellion. And we have been taught to confuse that. We have been taught, many of us through our Christian life, 
that because rebellion and immaturity sometimes looks the same in outward behavior, we confuse them and we present ourselves and our identity is rooted in the idea that we're rebels and we're hopeless hypocrites. And you hear that all the time in platforms. The, the man of God gets up on the platform. He says, well, the Lord showed me my rebellion. And everybody goes, wow, he's so humble. No, that, that, that's, that's bad doctrine. That's disastrous. All the new little believers going, wow, that's so cool. He's being humble. He's rebellious. Well, I must be rebellious. Then they all think and see themselves as hopeless hypocrites, as rebels. We're not rebels. We're immature. There's a vast difference. A vast difference. We're lovers of God that struggle with sin, not rebellious people who struggle to love God. We're lovers of God. Yes, we struggle with sin. That's a very, very different understanding than the fact we are hopeless hypocrites with rebellious hearts who occasionally put a little effort out to struggle to love God. And that's how a lot of people understand themselves. And that is, that is, uh, uh, that will shut our hearts down. Second principle, the sincere intention to obey God is distinct from the attainment of mature obedience. The sincere intention to obey God is distinct from. Here's my point. When there is a desire, when there's a cry in your spirit to obey, that is when the Lord's heart begins to see the beauty and finds pleasure in fellowship with you. We imagine that when we attain to obedience, that's when the Lord begins to enjoy us. We think the attainment of obedience is the only place there's victory. Beloved, the sincere desire, the sincere intention to obey is a substantial beginning of the grace of God and victory in your life. It's not the devil that gave you a desire to obey him. And it's not even your flesh. It's the very work of God. And God reckons with it and counts it as precious. God enjoys the mature while, I mean the immature, while they are maturing. He enjoys us while we are maturing, not only after we mature. God's love for unbelievers is not the same thing of His enjoyment of His people. God loves the world. God so loves the world. God loves the rebel who hates God. God so loves the world. God loves the world, but He enjoys the church. He loves the the person who is not born again, but he enjoys the born again person. There's a big difference between loving us and enjoying us. He loves everybody, but he enjoys only the redeemed. God's enjoyment of us is not the same thing as his agreement with every, every area of our life. The Lord looks at me and says, Mike, I enjoy you, but I disagree with this area, this area, and this area. Some of us have or confused by this because we think if he enjoys us, he must agree. And so somewhere something doesn't add up. No, it's the premise that his enjoyment requires that he agrees with everything. That's a false premise. No more than a, 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 a parent looks at a two-year-old and has to, they can enjoy the young child while disagreeing with many things the young child is doing. God looks at your life and he likes you. Though he doesn't agree with some of the things that you're participating in or that I am participating in. God's correction is not the same thing as his anger, his disgust, or his rejection of us. 
we can, we are disciplined by the Lord because He likes us, not because He's angry at us. Some people cannot, they just can't, they, they, they can't enter into this. They, anytime that something negative, it's God's anger and God, uh, God's desire to take us to the woodshed and really let us have it. God does take us to the woodshed and He lets us have it, but it's because He likes us. His correction is not the same thing as His anger. His anger is towards the rebels. And His, judge, his wrath comes upon rebellion. His discipline is towards His church, but He enjoys versus despises the people that He disciplines. So you can be under the discipline of the Lord and the Lord look at you and say, I really like you, that's why I'm disciplining you. And finally, this is a very confusing one. God entrusts more spiritual authority to the mature, but that doesn't mean that He loves them more. God entrusts more spiritual authority to the mature, but that doesn't mean that God loves the mature more. See, we end up with this false idea that the people with greater power in ministry or greater uh, spheres of blessing in their life, they must be more loved of God. That is not a, an accurate equation. God doesn't enjoy me any more the day I'm born again than when I've been in heaven a billion years. He will entrust more as I mature, but not because He likes me more. He will entrust more as I mature because it won't damage me or damage others. He says, I don't want to give you more. It's like giving a shotgun to a four-year-old. The, any, any wise parent would say, I love you, therefore I won't give it to you. But we end up with this unspoken idea that God must really like Billy Graham because he touches so many people. It's an unconscious but a very concrete equation inside of us that the bigger the ministry, the more God likes us. That is not anywhere even close to how God reckons things. God entrusts more spiritual authority when it does not damage you or the people that you will use that authority in the midst of. And even then, He allows us to have sometimes more than we, than we walk out in a faithful way. So God looks at Paul the Apostle in the height of his apostolic maturity and gives him more power to operate in, but doesn't like him any more than the day he was born again. Tell you, beloved, when Jesus looked at John the Apostle and says, John, I like you like the Father likes me. And John was just rebuked for his arrogance. And John denied the Lord. All of them denied the Lord. But he goes, I want you to know, John, right now, I like you like the Father likes me. Beloved, you have the right to see yourself as God's favorite. God can never like anybody more than God likes God. And that's how He likes you. Every born-again believer can stand before the Lord as the Lord's favorite one. John the Apostle ran with it. He said, I'm the one the Lord loves. He, he's the only one that I find in the Gospels that ran with that. Five times in the Gospel of John, he goes, I'm the one that God likes. It's, it's interesting. He says, Peter and the one that God likes ran to the tomb. He wouldn't budge from that. He says, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm the one God likes. I don't care if they don't want to run with it. I'm running with it. And one of the most uh, powerful uh, 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 experiences I have in my life with the Lord's uh, is when I come before the Lord and I, and, I've said, and I say this to Him, I close my eyes, I say, Lord, I, I, I tap into John's understanding of Himself. I go, Lord, here I am, Your dear one, Your favorite one, the one You like, it's me again. I love to say that. I've said that a thousand times over the years. 
Lord, it's me, your favorite one, the one you like. And some of you that can't quite do this, you'll have to take the next couple of minutes and say, I did this and this and this, I swear I won't, I won't, I won't. You'll have to do that for maybe the first year or two until you get used to it. But eventually you don't even have to add all that because God already knows all that stuff. The first couple of years I would do that. Lord, I'm the one that you like. And, and by the way, Lord, I, I really am going to get more serious about. And finally the Lord communicated to my heart, quit negotiating with me every time you come in my presence. Just let me like you. Let me stun you with how I feel about you. And those things will drop off in their time. Now you might, I, there's no way that you grasp all seven of those principles and the implications of them. But they're there. You know that they're studying them out. Follow the, the logic of them and develop them in even a greater way. These seven principles show up throughout the Song of Solomon. And we'll be referring to them a number of times. Okay. Revelation-based empowerment of life or revelation-based desire for God. One of the great questions that I'm asked many places that I travel is, how, because I wrote a book called Passion for Jesus, they go, how can we have more passion for Jesus? Which means, how can we have more desire for God? We want to desire God more. How do you do it? One of the first things I tell them, I says, you have to start with the premise, it takes God to love God. It takes the power of God on the human heart for the human heart to love God. You have to know that. So whatever you do to position yourself in the way of the Lord, that's number one, the first tent. It's not about gritting your teeth. It's about positioning your heart in a certain place where God's influence touches you because it takes God to love God. And there is no question in the Word of God, and I know it in a limited way in my few years on the earth... It's understanding of the knowledge of God that empowers the heart to love. It's divine information about God in the most concise and summarized answer. It's what God looks like. When God shows us a little bit what He looks like, that is the beginning of empowering our heart to love Him. And obviously there's a thousand thoughts that flow after that, but that's where it starts. Revelation is what empowers our heart to desire God. Because when we find out what God looks like, it's only a matter of time till you figure out what you look like to God. When you find out what God looks like, just a little bit of time, you find out what you look like to God a little bit. And those two truths together change your emotional chemistry. People come and say, I want to love God more. I say, fill your mind with what God looks like. They go, what? Fill your mind with truths that, in, that uh, illumine your understanding to the beauty of the Lord, what the Lord looked like, what His personality, what His mental and emotional capacities are like. His mental and emotional makeup. Fill your mind with what God looks like, emotionally and mentally, and then you'll find out what you look like to God. Just a, little, just a couple steps down the way, it will come very, very natural. The Holy Spirit will bring you right into that. And your emotional chemistry will begin to be radically changed and shifted. She cries out. She goes, it's because of the fragrance of your good perfumes. I'm going to use the NIV perfumes. I love that. Because of the fragrance of your good perfumes. She goes, your love is better than wine. And because of the fragrance of your good perfumes. Oh, what a sentence. The perfume of God. The good perfume of Christ Jesus. 
Perfume is not an activity. Perfume is not a visible substance. When perfume is in the air, you can't grab a handful of it. But we can still feel its impact. It can still stir our heart. It's something that we feel. It speaks of Jesus' lovely personality. Which especially includes His passion and His pleasure for His people. The good perfumes of Christ Jesus speak of His mental and emotional makeup. Those are the perfumes of God in the Song of Solomon and throughout Scripture. It's like the rose. You look at the rose, and I have that written down here somewhere, that you look at the rose... And the rose is pretty on the outside, but it's the internal quality of the rose from which the perfume is emanates from. And, 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 the, and the imagery of perfume is, is directing our attention to the internal qualities of the Godhead. The rose is beautiful in its external appearance, but its fragrance comes from its internal hidden properties. And, the, and, and what the, uh, the bride is saying... Because of the fragrance of your good perfumes, because of your internal qualities, you wow me. You and, and perfume, as we know, is a bridal metaphor. It's 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 a metaphor related to love and romance. She could have said, I mean, if it was a scientist, uh, you know, paradigm of this, she could have said, because you're so brilliant. But she says, because you smell so good, because my heart is stirred so deeply by things that are mysterious and hidden, I can't get a handful of it. I can't really see the external way that it emanates because fragrance comes from the internal quality. There's a mystery. There's a hidden dimension to fragrance, but it stirs the heart in a powerful way in the emotions. She goes, oh, because of the good perfumes of Christ Jesus. Beloved, all of heaven... It's filled with the perfumes of Christ Jesus. It's not only is heaven filled, but actually the earth is filled with it as well. But it takes a spirit of revelation like David did. He looked up in the heavens and said, the beauty of the Lord, it takes a spirit of revelation to see the perfume of God everywhere in, natu- in the natural realm as well. Not, not in the strict sense everywhere, because there is sin and evil, but the perfumes of God are manifest in the natural in many, many, many places. David, under the spirit of revelation, could discover the beauty of the Lord, the perfumes, the good perfumes of God. But here's what I want you to understand. That it's the, the fragrance of Jesus' good perfumes was something that motivated her. It was something that grabbed her, something that stunned her. It's not just the mandate to serve us. It's being lost in the perfumes of God. That's a... Another way to describe the life of love, the devotional life. I talk uh, uh, quite a bit about this. By the way, the perfumes are literal. On page 11, 6, 2 Corinthians 2 talks about the fragrance of Jesus. His fragrance is literal. It's not just a, a metaphor. It's not just imagery. He really has literal perfume. It's used in a figurative sense as well to speak of his internal qualities that are mysterious and hidden. And throughout the Song of Solomon, the perfume of God is imparted to the bride. His perfume becomes her perfume. And that's, of course, the great climactic turning point of the book in 416. 
Come and let the north winds blow upon my garden. Why? That it spices, that my perfumes would flow, that your perfumes would be on me, and they would be my perfumes. I would possess some of the qualities of your beauty in my personhood by the impartation of the Spirit. That's her goal. 4.16, that's one of her goals, that His perfume would saturate her life. I've had the chance to do a, it's a quite fascinating study, and we won't be able to cover it in this course, but, but at another time, at another place, the progression of his perfume and her perfume throughout the song. You, you can study yourself, begin to investigate it. The unfolding of her knowledge of, her, of his perfume, through, it's more intense as the book goes on, and her experience of it in her own life, not only does she see his perfumes in a progressive way, she, they are imparted to her in a progressive way. The unfolding of the progression of how the perfume is discerned and how it is imparted is a fascinating study in Song of Solomon. That's what we want, isn't it? We want the perfume of God, is what Paul said, emanating out of us. It's real. And I don't mean real in the sense of there is an actual fragrance. Obviously, the Lord has that dimension, but I'm talking about the spiritual dimension of it in this age. His name is poured forth in a way that reveals his nature and his character. The logic, she's saying, because of the fragrance of your good perfumes, your name is poured forth. When she says your name is poured forth, that is the action that flows out of the reason he has his name is good perfumes. She's saying, I know why God chose your name to be the one name. That's what she's saying. The name that's poured forth, when Jesus' name is poured forth, it speaks of God the Father exalting it and manifesting it in the natural realm. God's name poured forth is the Father's decision to exalt and pour forth. Only one name is poured forth in time and eternity. It's the name of Jesus. But she's saying, she goes, I got it. I have tapped into one of the mysteries of the Godhead. It's because your name is good perfume. That's why the Father chose your name. Because your name is stunning. It's powerful. It it changes everything it comes in contact with. That's why your name is the only name poured forth. And it's like the angels are looking at us saying, you're catching on. It is a stunningly powerful name. That's why God chose it as the only name that He pours forth in history. There's only one name that's named. There's only one poured forth name. Maybe somebody says, why is everybody always talking about him? Because he's the only one that has a fragrant name besides the Father and the Spirit. But they have made him the focal point, that his name would be the one that would be poured forth and that he would glorify the Father in that. I talk about the sweet perfume of God's personality. There are five verbs that are found in one verse. I, I, I call it the most... A comprehensive and concise statement of God's emotional makeup in Luke 15, 20. Five verbs that describe what God is like are put in one small verse. It's the most comprehensive, concise statement about the perfumes of God. You can study that on your own. Now she says, because your fragrance, the fragrance of your good perfumes, two things happen. Number one, God has chosen to pour forth your name. But the second thing that happens is that that the virgins fall in love with you. Because his name is perfume, 
Because His name is so powerful in its mystery and its wonder, the Father has chosen to pour it forth, and the redeemed, those are the virgins, they are powerfully impacted by it. That's the logic of what's happening here. She understands, she's tapping into some of the mystery within the, the eternal counsels of the Godhead. She goes, it's the only effective name. It's the name that, that changes the redeemed, the virgins. They love you because it's a perfumed name. And here's the logic of what, why it's important for you. If you believe his name is perfumed name and it can change dull, broken people into lovers of God, you will seek to know that name. That's because this, this first four verses is the theme of the whole song. It's the, it's the goal of what she's aiming, she's aiming for. She's laying out her theology in these first four verses. She goes, I'm telling you, it's inevitable that the redeemed will be lovers of God for one reason. Because the perfumed name touches their spirit and transforms them. Why do you care about this? Because it's that name that will make you a lover. It's that name that will make the people in your ministry lovers of God. It's the perfumed name. It's the name the Father chose. It's the name that effectively changes human beings. That's what's going on here. You can again read the uh, full details. I want to give you more, obviously, that we can cover because I want you to study it and read it and think it through and develop it, etc. Okay. The expression of her fervency, a twofold life vision. Draw me away and let us run. There it is right there. Draw me and let us run. Draw me away, a cry for intimacy. Let us run, a cry for partnership and ministry. She wants to be drawn in intimacy and she wants to run in partnership to touch the lives of other people. I I developed the draw me, but the idea is that she says, above everything, I want to be lost in intimacy with you. But it's not enough uh, to be drawn only. See, where do I, let me see. uh, Looking for something. Well, somewhere in there. It's, I have a couple paragraphs where I'm discussing the tension in our individual lives between drawing and running. It's, 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 a, it's a constant tension throughout our, our entire spiritual journey. On the front end, people want to run in ministry, typically, without being drawn in intimacy. Then they burn out, which is her experience. We'll look at it next session. They burn out when they're running without being drawn. And then they overreact and they want to be only drawn and they never want to run. That's where I was for a couple of years. I said, forget that running stuff. I'm just going to be drawn. What he, and the Lord has seasons in our lives where he'll accent one over the other, even for a period of time. But the order of the kingdom is to be drawn in intimacy first. And then we run in ministry. It's not like we do one, then we do the other. We can do them both at the same time. But the priority in the Spirit is the first commandment, which empowers us to the second commandment. Though the Lord will have seasons where He will cause you to pull away to develop the drawing dimension of your life. In the 50-year picture of your life in ministry, if you're young... The Lord may say, I might draw you for a while to establish you. So don't be afraid of that if the Lord calls you to that. But at first, people typically want to run, and then they get burnt out. Then they want to be drawn, and then the Lord says, okay, up, up, come on, join me. He challenges the comfort zone, says, I want you to run with me still. I want you to go to the mountains with me. 
Okay. There it is. A proper life vision contains both aspects. A worshiper and a deliverer. We, we, we're drawn and we run. We recognize the tension between the two. Though I believe the Lord is more and more uh, calling people to Himself for an extended season, a year or two or three sometimes, where He's causing them to be drawn in intimacy in a very deep way. That's something somebody else can't call you to. The Lord Himself has to. But He wants us operating in both of them. Okay. We don't have time to develop the four types of Christians, but you can read that on your own, and and they're pretty uh, just obvious. Okay. The growth of fervency, the chamber experiences. She says, draw me and let us run, for the king has brought me into his chambers. I call these the chamber experiences. It's the place where God carries us through special experiences in the grace of God. It's the secret history in God. It's the private part of our life. I call it the chamber experiences. And the Lord picks us up and He carries us. He gives us these experiences as a free gift. Now we can seek the Lord, but when it's all said, uh, earnestly, but when it's all said and done, He gives us the chamber experiences as a free gift. And these chamber experiences, and I developed this a, a bit here for a page or two, These are the experiences that form and fashion our inner man. The secret life in the Lord. The chamber experiences. It's a massive concept in the life of the bride. The chamber experiences her secret life in God that nobody knows anything about. Where the Lord confronts her and develops things in her and gives her mandates and woos her in ways that are just between her and Him. She ends with this. Now she's speaking directly to the virgins, to the redeemed throughout history. We will be glad and we'll rejoice in you. We will remember your love, or let's put the word, your affection, your the pleasures of God. We will remember them more than even the wine of blessing. How much more the wine of sin? This is a prophetic encouragement. It's interesting. We will be glad and rejoice. We will remember you. Glad and rejoice is the very language the bride will say in Revelation 19 on the wedding day. It's directly, it's the exact language we will say before the Lord. When we look over our life, the Father, I imagine the Father saying something, Do you accept my Son's leadership over you? And we will rejoice and be glad because we will see the wisdom of how He led us on the earth. But she's beginning to, by faith, declare it now. She goes, I can't make sense of all the pressures, but I know this. It's inevitable that I will rejoice with gladness when I fully understand the full logic of everything happening. Because at the end, the prophetic certainty is we end up with a rejoicing and a glad heart. And the strength of it is that she remembers. She's called to draw upon that vast resource. And from the chamber experiences, she's constantly renewing her mind to the remembrance of the affection of God. There's many things about the beauty of God. But she goes to the very core, what Paul called the height, the depth, the length, and the width of the love of God. Ephesians 3.18. She goes, in the crisis, I go to that fourfold height, depth, length and width of the affection of God, and out of that beginning, all the other facets of the beauty of God make sense to me. She says, I will call myself to a lifetime of remembering and filling my mind with that, only 
in that understanding can we rejoice in this age and be glad because we can make sense of the pressures of life. And I develop those thoughts and then I give some summaries and some prayers at the end for your own personal edification. Amen. Let's stand. I know we covered a lot, but remember what my theology is. You're only reading the menu when you're at a teaching session. You're only reading the menu. You're not eating. This is only reading the menu. I don't, my goal is not to deeply impact you in these sessions. My, my goal is to excite you about arenas of truth you're going to go feed on in your private life. So you walk out of here going, okay, I remember that thing about God liking me like God likes God. Okay, I'm going to go for that one. Let me see. And I'm going to order the, I'm going to remember your affection. That's good. I'll take that for now. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Oh, we love you, Lord. Oh, we love to love you and we love to be loved by you. God, we love to love you. We love to be loved by you. I ask you that you would draw us. God, cause us to remember, cause us to renew our mind and understanding in the affection of God. Let that be the, let the perfume of God begin to touch our spirits and woo us and wow us. Father, I say to you, because of your son's perfume, because of the fragrance of his good perfumes, you wisely chose to pour out only his name. And Father, I say that the redeemed of the earth, the weak and broken humans, Your son's perfume is sufficient to transform us. It makes us love you. The remembrance of it will cause us to be, to be glad and to rejoice even in this age before we stand before you face to face with full rejoicing and gladness. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. This concludes this tape presentation from Friends of the Bridegroom. For more information on resources available from Mike Bickle, as well as news about upcoming conferences and live broadcasts, visit our website at www.fotb.com. Thank you.